This is episode 76 of The New Disruptors, Freelance to Be, You and Me, with Katie Lane. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you by our friends at Cards Against Humanity. Did you know you can buy Cards Against Humanity now directly from them? Go to cardsagainsthumanity.com where you can get the basic sets and expansion sets as well as the bigger, blacker box and their charity holiday packs where all profits go to Wikimedia Commons and to Donors Choose. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests you read the fine print. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Katie Lane is an attorney who writes a blog called Work Made for Hire. She advises creative freelancers and artists on how to protect their rights and to get paid fairly for their work. She recently took the plunge herself and went full-time self-employed. We'll talk about what led her into this specialized legal career and the kinds of things that people who want to or are pursuing work on their own should consider. Hi, Katie. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure. And I'll mention the, there's a nepotism angle, which is you're the first, now you and your wife, Dylan McConus, are the first married couple who have been separately on the show. So thank you for being part of it. I, I am very proud to participate in this nepotism. Thank you. I, I have had some couples and married couples together, but you have two separate interests. For the two, so, first separate? Right. And this first time. And, the, and the, it, makes, it makes sense. You know, I, I found out about you because uh, tons of my friends in Portland are independent artists, including your wife, and are and like, oh, you should talk to Katie. You should talk to Katie. You should talk. I'm like, well, maybe <laughs> I should talk to Katie. You have, this, you have this very, I mean, I say quite specialized approach. I, I'm always curious what leads people down the path they take. What what led you into law and then into this this angle of it what what was the appealing thing about becoming a lawyer uh i went to law school uh, for two reasons one i was scared of joining the real world so I, I wanted to stay in school i had uh i went to college and i majored in theater and history and communications and i had a blast but i didn't have any skills so <laughs> i decided uh, but i was really good at reading things so i decided that continuing my education was probably a good idea and law school uh made sense in part because I was a theater nerd. Like I, I was that kid in high school that dressed in all black and would take absolutely any opportunity to get on stage or do improv or whatever. And I, as a result of that in high school, I was part of an apprentice company of the local professional theater that did all those plays that, you know, the community was scared of. We did, it was in <laughs> Columbia, South Carolina, Trustus Theater. Um, and we did Angels in America. Oh my uh, God. Like when it, when the licensing first went out and it, it was kind of amazing because we did not get the backlash that, that some other theaters in the South did, but they had an apprentice company and it was a group of high school students and you got to come once a month and do a workshop where professionals taught you about lighting design or costume design, acting, directing, script writing. And then you had to work one show. You had to be an usher once per show. And you could come and hang out at the theater whenever you wanted. So I was there almost every day after school. I lived there. And I got to see up close what running a nonprofit professional theater looked like. And it was hard. Mm-hmm. But I loved these people. These, I mean, it, it was kind of a magical situation to be in when you're 16 or 17 years old to have all of these adults who are working artists, uh, professional artists, and getting to see how they make that work and how they collaborate to make something bigger happen. So when I went to law school, I went with the intention that I wanted to help artists and creative people make doing their work easier. I knew how hard it was to get good, solid advice that didn't sound like it was coming from an automaton. Hmm. Uh, artists and creative folks focus on what they're good at doing. They don't focus on understanding the law. But sometimes uh, you get a lawyer who doesn't translate well. Lawyers, like every other profession, we have wonderful amounts of jargon that helps us make sense to each other. But it doesn't always help us communicate effectively with our clients. So 
I wanted to be a lawyer that somebody felt comfortable coming to for advice, that could give advice from the perspective of a creative person and, and really help them focus on what they wanted to achieve. Because another thing uh, they teach you in law school is to be afraid of everything. Um, <laughs> the world is going to end. And unless you draft the contract correctly, it, it will be your fault. So you need to plan for every possible situation, which is, I guess, a great thought exercise. But it's not really helpful when you're giving advice to somebody about what it is that they should do when every answer is, well, that's going to be risky. Life is risky. Like working for yourself is risky. I feel like creative people are already really well aware of what the risk is, but they need help understanding in practical, meaningful terms what that risk looks like for them. Well, I've heard this thing about people saying, you know, you well, you can't be sued for that. It's like, well, no, you could actually be sued. Anyone could. Yeah. So there's an issue about mitigating risk as opposed to you can't eliminate it. But it's like, Mm -hmm. what steps can you take? to ensure that you've done everything in good faith and in the right direction so that should you be sued, that you have the strongest possible position and you make it the most unattractive thing except for a totally crazy person to sue you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and litigation is super expensive. That's another thing that I tell people. Let's, let's, let's look at this realistically. Is somebody going to spend $10,000 to get $2,000 out of you? No, probably not. Can they make your life hell? Yeah, probably. They can they can be annoying, they can be insistent, but practically speaking, what is likely to happen? But you're right. Yeah, people can sue over anything. They don't necessarily <laughs> have to have a good claim as long as they are not outright lying about what they're uh, insinuating. They have a lot of free reign and that's you know, one of the trade-offs we have within our justice system. But the other thing that I tell people is that I need you to separate the idea of fairness from going to court. Going to court is not about fair. It is about hacking together a solution to a problem when two people can't figure that out on their own. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot more flexibility to find fair before you get to a courtroom uh, than you do after you filed that paperwork. And that's part of the reason I also focus on negotiation skills and teaching teaching conflict management skills because I feel like you have a lot more opportunities and tools available to you before you get to a you know a court case and if you use them wisely you can you can get closer to fair it's it's never going to be perfect but you can get closer well that's I think that's that unequal relationship problem that a lot of freelancers face is that, you know, I sign contracts with, you know, Condé Nast mm-hmm. or uh, The Economist Group, which is a massive multi-billion dollar privately owned corporation that happens in part to produce The Economist, but <laughs> does other things. And I'm like, I'm not really, I'm kind of at a, a, a disadvantage to them in terms of leverage and lawyering ability or, or the, you know, yeah. or whatever. Like, like the, and so I know there's an issue about that unfair contracts are sometimes difficult to enforce that you can as a as a participant in a contract even if you sign it that you may have the ability but then you have to litigate mm-hmm. to prove that right i mean it's not something that's just it's not a prima facie thing it's not like oh this is an unfair contract and i signed it right. and and now I'm in a bad shape but then you still have to go to court and deal with it right yeah anytime somebody is is t- so any anytime somebody is telling you something like that, which is true, you're you're absolutely right. If uh, if you can pr- prove a certain amount of unequal bargaining power and unawareness of what's going on, you can have an argument for invalidating the contract. But you do have to spend money to do that. So again, practically speaking, are you going to end up in court? Probably not. So should you spend your time wisely and reading over it and and really being aware of what risks you can take on and what you can't and having a sort of, a sort of bag of tricks of things that you try to improve your contracts. Absolutely. Because you're going to get a lot further there than you are just saying, well, that's unfair and you shouldn't have done that. Th- that might very well be true, but your ability to benefit from that argument requires you to have uh, the time, energy, and money available to go to court. This is something that comes up with selling a house. I've discovered, although uh, I've only bought one house in my life and I live in it, which is great. But but it's there's actually a, a great parallel, which is once you've sold or bought a house and like the other party has moved in, yeah. 
your recourse is really small. Yeah. Like the amount of litigation required, like that, and that's sort of like once you've signed the contract and you've delivered the work or haven't delivered the work, like you've really closed down a lot of doors. Yeah. Like you're not, you know, you're living in that house, and uh, that's you know, your house. yeah, it's, you're going like to have to make the best of it. <laughs> well, and that's true, but that's also something that a lot of freelancers don't realize is that you have these steps along the way. I think they they look at some some folks look at just signing the contract as being that necessary evil so that you can get to the real work. Mm -hmm. And while that's true in some sense that you are going to be able to do the thing that you are good at doing once the contract is signed, if you sign it too quickly, if you speed through that process without really paying attention to what's going on, you've actually reduced your, your available tools and your available options once the work starts. I mean, the common things are uh, you know, how are you going to get paid? Are you going to get a deposit up front and milestone payments after that? Do you have any recourse if they're paying late? Which if you're working with a large company, guess what? They're going to pay late. It costs it costs them more to pay you on time, uh, particularly in this economy, than it does to save that money for a little while, make some interest off of it, and then pay you a couple days late. And that's the thing. A lot of contracts, that there may be provisions for things, sure. but, the, but then the enforcement is the thing. It's like, right, that's an unequal relationship. So they, you know, I'm working with company, multi-billion dollar company X, and 60 days after they were supposed to pay me, they haven't. Yeah. You know, what is my next, you know, public shaming <laughs> is an option. I've done that actually with companies where I was willing to burn a bridge, mm -hmm. uh, Rarely, because then that puts you in a position where you are doing something that could be actionable, right? Yeah. If you if you accuse them of something publicly, even if it's true, if you have nuanced it incorrectly, perhaps they could sue you and win, or they could sue you and and cause you lots of trouble, and it would be a justifiable thing. But uh, we should, I guess, we should back up a second too, which is so you know uh, you work with a lot of, uh, I mean, you work largely with creative professionals. Mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the range of people you work with? You're married to an, an artist, a cartoonist, an artist, illustrator, and I know uh, you work with other cartoonists in the area. Is there an end to the, or a scope of the kinds of freelancers you work with that you try to specialize in? I work with, I, I usually say I work with creative freelancers, and that to me is a pretty broad spectrum. I work with somebody who, you know, does coding for software. I consider that a creative endeavor. I really like the open source community. And so anytime I get to support that, I, I like it. But designers, writers, actors, pretty much anybody who is working for themselves in a creative endeavor, I'm, I, I'm, I'm willing to work with. I also work with a couple of smaller businesses that have usually grown out of one particular person's uh, creative endeavors. And I like that because I get, I get to do a little bit more complex work than I would for an individual. But uh, my big philosophy is I can give you good advice. I can help you out in the moment. But one of the things that I'm going to do, whether you like it or not, is I'm going to teach you how to take care of yourself. <laughs> so, um, well, that's awesome. So that the next time you come back to, to me for a question or a problem, you've actually been able to accomplish quite a few things on your own and protect yourself well so that the work that we have to do together is, you know, of a, high, of a better value. We have more options available to us in how we address your problem because you've been better educated on what you can do up front. And you have a, a huge audience to draw from. I'm, I'm be curious. I know I don't know if I know any attorneys in Seattle who specialize in this who really make an art of it. But um, there's so I mean the freelance economy has grown enormously because all the companies became so you know they laid a ton of people off. Mm -hmm. They became shy about it just in general. Mm -hmm. I mean in a lot of industries. But we have this issue in uh, in a lot of the creative community, whether it's writing or any of these other areas you describe that. Even when we shouldn't be a contractor, we're hired as a contractor. Yeah. We're hired in, in a sort of, when I write an article, it's very clearly I'm a contractor, it's a freelance relationship. I know plenty of people who are working essentially part time or full time jobs who should be paid as employees and are not. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the Obama administration has actually enforced that a little bit more in Washington State in particular. They have a, a much more stringent test than the federal test, or it's not much more, but it's somewhat more. And they actually do enforcement and they've had you know, lawsuits against Microsoft yeah. and big employers as well. But it feels like a lot of people, 
have been forced into, you know, some people have chosen, some people have been forced into this, you know, the agent economy, you know, yeah. the free agent economy, and there's pluses and minuses. But I wonder from your perspective, since you work with so many people like that, have you have you seen that personally that people have been pushed out of or or decided to get out of an employment situation, and and this is how they're making their career, where maybe a few years or a decade ago they were in a job or they could have had a job? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I was actually talking to a friend the other day who left a, a full-time job recently, and now she is looking at her options, and one of them is basically consulting as her former job. <laughs> um, and and that has pluses and minuses to her for a variety of reasons. But I used to, um, prior to going full-time for myself and a number of years ago, I, I worked uh, for a company and I managed their hardware software uh, contract portfolio. I was the contract manager. And it, one of the things that I managed was the professional services. So every time we needed to hire a group of people for um, for development of application or we were installing a new system or a team just needed to be built out for a brief period of time to cover some some work, my group was responsible for managing that. And I saw during my time a really big uptick, and it was right around the time that the economy went you know, to crap, a, a really big uptick in the number of temporary workers that would end up being on site for two, three years. Mm-hmm. And part of what the companies do to manage that is, you know, you you come on for this particular project, but in six months, I'm going to move you over to this one. So you've changed. You're not, I'm not keeping you in the same place. I'm doing something else with you. So I'm not treating you like a full-time employee, but that's, you know, it's sort of a side-eye thing. <laughs> and I think some companies do a good job of managing that and some don't. Some like to take advantage of it. The other thing is that companies don't understand freelancing. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> understands in, 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 in the corporate world, people are really confused as to why in the world you would want to work for yourself. And they sort of assume that, oh, this must be what you're doing until you get a real job, a big girl job or a big boy job. And that's obviously false, but that perspective influences how they in, how they can end up treating those temporary workers, seeing themselves as doing something nice, giving you an opportunity to be here in a corporate environment. And they, you know, sometimes as a result, they don't treat freelancers the same way that they would if they were partnering with a small business or even a firm. Yeah, that's kind of like the uh, Starbucks myth where uh, Starbucks doesn't put that as much as they used to, but if not that long ago, Starbucks was like, well, we're a kind of job that's mostly like college students and people trying to do like a second mm. partial income or a homemaker who works, you know, and you're like, no, no, that's, no, not what you that's do. not, that's <laughs> nice that you're lying like that. But then they, then they actually got their act together and Starbucks, you know, they do hire per, some perm attempts. I know someone who's been a perm attempt mm-hmm. at Starbucks HQ, uh, but they also, they do, they tend to avoid that. They mostly hire full time in their operations. And then in the stores they've, they've expanded. They actually have some of the best healthcare and other yeah. kinds of yeah. options. I don't know if it's the most wonderful, you know, every store is probably different, but they, they became kind of an enlightened uh, company. And I, and I feel like that has not spread. It's fascinating that you say that companies look at people that way. Cause I feel like that has not spread to the larger world. Like it's one thing if you need people on demand for a project, mm-hmm. like you're doing, you know, I just did a book and I hired people, sure. not as employee. I have an, I have an LLC and I hired, you know, contractors to work for weeks and they did it with their own equipment and they're in another state <laughs> on their own time in their own means and method. Good, and, good. and we had a, and it was a specific, you know, time limited thing. And they, you know, put in hundreds of hours and, and that was it. And I don't need, didn't need them before. And I don't need them now because it was a project based thing. So that's like really clear cut, right? Like that's why you hire, it was a firm. I hired a design firm, but there's so many times I see people put in a position where I'd be like, wait, you don't have health. Why don't you have health insurance? Like, well, I'm not an employee. I'm like, how are you not an employee? Well, I'm like, you know, I work 40 hours a week for them. Like what? And and it just seems, it seems like it's ripe for change. And uh, I mean, do you advise people who get put into that situation? Have you been involved in any efforts where people feel like they are being like perma temporarily abused and want to, you know, get the benefits? I know there's been lawsuits about that. I don't know if that's been in any of your purview. I don't. I don't uh, spend as much time talking to to folks in that area, in part mm-hmm. because I I intentionally don't do litigation. Uh, I don't ah, okay. like it. 
I used to do it, and um, but you did theater, <laughs> and that was what I thought. I thought this is going to be great. It's like it's like being a, you know doing a play every day, but no, it's absolutely not what it's like. It's awful. So I well, I had an attorney for uh, a while when I had a more complicated company about fifteen plus years ago, and his thing was I'm going to do everything possible to avoid having to go into court. Absolutely. I mean, in the most positive way, like everything I'm going to do is going to be is going to try to avoid having to litigate anything for you yeah. or because of yeah. you and and it worked we didn't ever have a situation which was great absolutely and uh, you know those are those are areas where i can i can excel to i'm i'm good at giving you a contract that's going to give you lots of tools that you can use should something go wrong and i can write nasty letters and i can you know help you protect your ip but uh going to court is just not my bag it turns out not not the thing i like to do well, let's talk. Let's do some nitty gritty talk too here. So let's uh, um, about contracts now. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day, and they were having a dispute over an article with an editor. And I said, "Well, what does your contract say about whether you can pull your byline or pull the article mm-hmm. or you know whatever?" And they said, "I don't have a contract." And I said, "Oh, what? What?" And and they're you know they, they it's not their full they have a full time job sure. and this is on the side. They're not not savvy, but I was a little shocked. I was shocked a that the publication hadn't demanded one and B that she didn't have one. But the other part was I said, well, you own your, I mean, I'm, 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 I am not a lawyer. I A N A L. I am not a lawyer. You are a lawyer. But I said, to my knowledge, if you have not assigned your copyright to a party and you're not work for hire and an employee, then you actually possess a hundred percent of control. Like they, the publication is at risk in that situation. Uh, I, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. And yes, um, <laughs> generally speaking with copyright, it's, it's sort of this magical thing in uh, the United States where as soon as you create something, as soon as it is quote, fixed in a, a tangible medium of expression, uh, <laughs> it has a copyright. Now you can register that copyright and get additional benefits from that registration. And it's worth it if you are a regular creator to do that. But there is this exception to that called work for hire. And work for hire basically says, okay, at that magic point of creation, instead of the person with the pen to the paper being the author under copyright law, the person who has hired uh, the creator is the author. So the business that has hired it is the author and they own the copyright from the point of inception. Um, so it's like, you know, double magic. First, there's this magical right that, that, that comes from just fixing something in a tangible medium of expression. But work for hire adds this other element in and says the person who's writing it is not actually the author. The person who hired is the author. But for work for hire to apply you have to have a writing and it has to say, <laughs> we intend for this to be a work for hire. Right. And it has to fit within a particular category. It can't just be, I want this to be a work for hire. Therefore it is. There are a limited number of things that that can, that can apply to. Because you you can't just, I mean, you can assert like, like I don't think I've signed, I believe because I have not been an employee for most of my career and almost none of my writing career. I believe that I'm not sure I've signed any contract that wasn't, all the contracts I have assigned, I believe, are assignments of copyright. Mm-hmm. I think I've signed once or twice on a work for hire thing, and I wasn't sure it was actually applicable, but it was a perishable piece that was bespoke for like a company, a bit of business writing, yeah. and I never wanted it again, yeah. and I had no neat reason to establish right, so I was like, whatever. But for you know anything I write for any you know uh, published media, mm-hmm. they're usually asking me to assign. It might be a hundred percent of rights, but as a right assignment as opposed to work for hire. So technically, I'm still the copyright holder. I've just assigned 100% of my rights under copyright to the party that wants to print it. You are, you are technically the original author, but original author. by, by okay. assigning it, it is a transfer. So it's the same thing as if I, if I gave you my coffee cup, you now have this coffee cup and you can do whatever you want with it. The interesting thing with copyright assignments is in 35 years, I can come back and ask for my copy, coffee, coffee, coffee cup back. <laughs> Coffee. Too much coffee. That's the, the the right of rescission. Is that something like that? There's a... a right of rescission is something usually that you write into the contract itself and says oh, okay. if X, Y, or Z happens, I get I, this. This reverts back to me. But thirty five years, I don't know about this. This is great. Thirty five years. This is a magic little hidden thing. Uh, it, you will notice. I think copyright is magic. Uh, it's this wonderful little thing written in to the Copyright Act that you actually can't sign away. You cannot sign something that says I agree never to come back and pull back my copyright from you. 
during an assignment. But yeah, uh, in the 35th year, you can go back and you can say, you know what? I changed my mind. I want it back, which... So you have to you have to put a calendar reminder for that. <laughs> exactly. But that's part of the reason that there are so many people that that want, that prefer, if they can apply, work for hire to something. Because work for hire is forever the end. Right. Whereas an assignment, there's this risk into the future. And that's, uh, this assignment issue is actually one of the things that has fueled so much of the litigation in comics between uh, creators or their estates and some of the, oh. the larger publishers. Yeah. Because the argument that they're making is, hey, this wasn't a work for hire because of whatever reason. So the only other thing it could have been is an assignment. And if it is an assignment, then I get to come back to you at this point in time and say, no, I want my toys back. And that obviously is uh, <laughs> incredibly risky for the publisher. Let me take a quick break to tell you about something you could do to help us at The New Disruptors. If, if you take this short anonymous survey that will take no more than five minutes to complete, this will help us. Your answers help us match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibility of our listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey are entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com slash disrupt. That's www.podsurvey.com slash disrupt to take our survey, help us find our advertisers, and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks so much for your time. And now back to the podcast. I know this came up in the music industry. There's a there's a special right called the phonogram right, which you may be aware of, and the phonogram or or um, what's it called? It's not you know, the audio copyright sometimes called, but the phonogram right, which has a cool. If you look in Unicode, you can make a P yep. with a circle around it, right? So it's a separate right from the composition right or performers mm -hmm. rights or whatever. I've written extensively about this because I like obscure things, and uh, there was an issue about the phonogram right used to be um, common or not common law, but under um, yeah under common law, like it was under the state common law, and it was federalized. And and there's a whole issue about artists, including people like Johnny Cash's estate, mm -hmm. like 35 years later, depending on how the right was federalized or not, mm -hmm. there may be an issue. There's a work going on underway to try to harmonize. Uh, it's very obscure, but the flip side or the reason there's so much interest, the record labels are worried that all the artists and their estates will suddenly have the right to claim back their assignment yeah. uh, all at once. Yep. And it would the labels would all lose an enormous catalog of work if that happened. Absolutely. So it's a real thing. But it feels like you have to have a calendar reminder. Okay, like 35 <laughs> years from now. I have a friend who's a children's book author and a, a technical author, and he wrote some work in 1970. In fact, he was telling me – this funny, and I, you mentioned that not that long ago. He was mentioning that he was actually – got a clock ticking, and he was actually thinking about trying to get some of his early work uh, back because some of it was out of print, some of it was not. But that was uh, that was exactly what he was talking about. I didn't realize that was the right. Yeah, that's and it you know it makes it even more confusing because you have the Copyright Act of seventy eight, which was written in seventy six, and so you have <laughs> you have these weird situations where during that period, you know, that the end of the sixties to through the seventies, you've got different rules that could apply depending on how people did things. Because it used to be that so prior to the the most recent version of the Copyright Act, you had to do more than just create a thing to get a copyright. You had to publish it, and then there was a renewal uh, after the a certain period of time. You had to renew your copy right if you wanted to maintain it and so a lot of things ended up in the public domain because they weren't renewed you know you got your first your first term and that was fine or a thing wasn't published in time which is actually where that horrible myth about mailing something to yourself comes from oh yeah yeah so that is the i hate that it's it's wrong and it's silly uh you will only spend postage uh but there's this myth that if you write something like a screenplay and you put it in an envelope and you mail it to yourself and it's postmarked and you never open it you've got a copyright in the thing and so nobody can ever steal it from you oh my gosh these days these days you write it and you're good this is what i think people still come up against that i mean i know this is some of this is obscure but i love this area but it's the it's that even as a freelancer even as like you know you're one person you're writing one thing one time in your life is still directly affects you and i think a lot of people still think they have to either they have no rights right. 
or B, that they have to do some kind of registration thing. It's like, no, the act of creation, it's like you make it, it exists. And then there's an issue about whether it's published or not, but the act of creation establishes that date. Uh, I mean, I know there's, you know, there's a great site of people, I'll put this in the show notes, but people who really want to go in the nitty gritty, uh, there's a professor at Cornell who's been maintaining this great page that explains in excruciating but useful detail, like what copyright covers yes. different periods of different kinds of things. I refer to it often and, to, and interview him on a regular basis yeah. uh, for this, but, but it does affect it affects it. I mean, well, let's tie this into the, the contract thing is because, I mean, copyright is, I know there's a bunch of different kinds of things you want as a, as an independent party in a contract with an organization you're doing business with. And copyright is certainly one of them because it affects your ownership and control. What are the other kinds of things that someone should, uh, I mean, well, even back up one step further, do you believe everyone should have a contract before they do uh, work, uh, you know, freelance work? I think if you're doing creative work, it, it really is in your best interest to have something so many things need to be spelled out. Yeah, something that documents, we meant this. Uh, this, is, this is what we mean. Because, you know, we're human beings. We've got fussy little memories. And uh, you and I enter into uh, a particular project right now, and it's going great. But then we have a couple of disagreements, and I start thinking of my work in a particular way and your work in a particular way. And all of a sudden, I have a different perspective with which to remember what it was we agreed to. So one of the things that I think is really helpful about having a contract is it can remind you of what the original intent was mm. by just writing it down when everybody's happy and has the ability to take a step back and say, is this really what I want to do? Is this really what I, how I want to handle it? And the other thing is it's a great place to leave conflicts. Uh, a contract can tell you how it is you're going to manage a conflict if something comes up. And that way you don't have to figure out the rules later on when you're in the heat of the moment and you're already mad or disappointed or frustrated. By having a contract, you have a template basically to follow for managing this conflict. What can I actually do? What are some of the tools I can use? Can I charge interest for late payments? Am I allowed to have my rights revert back to me at a certain point in time? Can I take the work to somebody else? All of those things are tools that you have if a conflict arises. And so it can be incredibly helpful just to have that all written out. Well, I've thought about it as is a, a contract. I mean, I realize, you know, it's a formal document and there's all these, you know, and this is why this is why you go through law school and you <laughs> practice and you read books and you stay up on it is that there's, I know that like, a, I mean, there was something recently where it was to do with telephone poles or something where like a comma could have meant hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars. I mean, literally yeah. they were adjudicating, at, you know, an appeals over a comma. So I know it can get down to that level. But but just in normal practice, I always think of a, a contract is it is that thing. It's like this is what we understand that we're doing. And I've always said I've had people say like, well, we don't need a contract or, well, we don't need to have that provision <laughs> in the contract. And I said, I'm not signing a contract with you. I'm signing a contract with the person who, you know, if when you die right. or if the person who buys your business, if you you sell, can you tell me you're not going to sell your business tomorrow? No. Yeah. Well, if you sold your business tomorrow, my contract isn't with you. My contract's with your company. Yeah. And it's, you know, contracts are, especially for freelancers, are typically transferable forever yeah. unless you're, uh, uh, I signed a font contract actually that turned out not to be transferable across businesses. Nice. And we wound up having to pay hundreds of dollars to use the font in a new application, Ugh. even though it was the same thing because yeah. the business has been transferred, which was smart for the font company, yep. but not well known. But but that's that thing is you're signing, when you sign a contract, you're signing it with whoever may ultimately own the rights, not necessarily the friendly person you're dealing with at that moment or the person in the company who then is fired and is replaced by the world's biggest jerk. Absolutely. I, I, I tell people, you know, if, because I, I also hear that, well, I don't want to have, have a contract because I, I don't. I don't want to say anything bad about our relationship. I really respect our relationship, so we don't need a contract. If you really respect me, contract. Yeah, you know, if you really care about what happens to me and how I'm treated in the future, you want me to have a contract. Because a contract, you know, just like you say, no matter who ends up inheriting it, it is dictating how we're going to work together. And I think a lot of freelancers, because we, you know, you spend so much time hustling to get those gigs and to make associations with people within companies, build relationships. You don't want, you don't want to hurt that relationship with that particular person. So you don't want to, you know, I, I talk to a lot of freelancers who say, I don't want to ask for that because that I, I don't want to hurt their feelings, which is great. I, I get it. I get where that's, 
that's coming from psychologically. But at the same time, that person is not the person you're contracting with. You're contracting with their company and their company has all sorts of rules and procedures and processes and people that might impact your work. And it is in your best interest to make sure that what you intend is very clearly spelled out. Now, at the same time, every job does not require a, you know, a lengthy fleshed out contract. Some jobs can be done very, very simply. It's the same thing. Like some stories are better suited for a uh, comic and some stories are better suited for a short film and some stories are better suited for a novella. Your gig will dictate uh, what kind of contract and how complex it needs to be. But actually forming a contract, that's another thing, doesn't take a whole ton. So what you need is you, you need an offer like, hey, Glenn, would you do this work for me for you know mm-hmm. X number of dollars? Acceptance of that offer. So you say yes. And then consideration. And consideration is me paying you money and you giving up your time to do the work for me. So we're exchanging things of value. We have a contract. Now, if we just leave it at that, that's all we have a contract for. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money for this particular work. But we don't know when I'm going to pay you. We don't know uh, how you're going to perform the work. We don't know uh, what the timeline is for delivering the work. We don't know... Uh, whether or not I'm going to pay you in cash or uh, in kind or, you know, am I going to use PayPal? Am I going to send you a money order? If I send you a money order, <laughs> am I going to have to pay the fee or are you going to have to pay? It? You know, like all of a sudden it get, there are all of these things that you realize you don't know. So what I encourage people to do when they're, when they're thinking about a gig and they don't have a contract available to them, if everything went absolutely magically wonderfully right – what would you want to know? Oh, yeah. And if everything went absolutely horribly, terribly wrong, what would you want to know? Those are the things that need to be in your contract. It needs to be the best of times and the worst of times so that you can understand what it is you are agreeing to and that you have the tools available should something come up. I sometimes tell companies I work with, smaller ones who are less experienced, I say, you need a contract with me and you need these provisions in it because I want you to be protected. I want you to tell me your expectations. And if something goes wrong or, you know, if I die, if my wife wants to pursue a lawsuit, I mean, not like that, but, you know, it's it's still, it's just, there's, there's too many variables. And if it's not defined, um, there's another myth I wanted to address too, which is I've heard this more times and I'm sure you have as well. It's the, we don't change our contract for Mm. anyone. And every time it's a lie. Yeah. I, every time it's a lie. I believed it once. I took a job. This is a, an employment contract, uh, an offer, like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Took a job. And they said that. And I negotiated sort of some of the terms but not the details. Mm-hmm. And within a week, I found out they had done different deals with everybody. Yes. And they lied to me. And that sort of set the tone. I didn't stay at that job that long because yeah. I felt like I'd been lied to to begin with. But uh, another case, we signed a lease. Uh, I and some other freelancers, we had shared space. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, I actually made an agreement for all of us sharing space about who was going to pay and Nicely what. Done, we signed a little tiny informal agreement that, yes, just because <laughs> of previous disputes, uh, dis- misunderstandings. Uh, but so we got this lease and the landlord said, well, we don't change anything in it. We opened it up. They left track changes on. Oh, they changed it for everybody. Nice. We could see it red marks and deletions throughout. We're like, you really – we did not sign a lease with that yeah, man, right? because of trust issues. But that is that a myth that you hear – I mean either are told that, you know, I got this contract and I don't like these terms, but they told me – they never change the contract for anyone. Yeah. That, I think that's that that's something common. And I think that's something common that people assume as well. Like I can't ask for these changes because they wouldn't they haven't changed it for anybody. I had a, a client once who was handed a contract when he got on set. Like so he, he didn't oh, get it man. prior and it was printed yeah. out and there was something in there that he couldn't agree to. Like he literally couldn't agree to it based on other commitments that he had. And so he was like, what do I do? And I said, cross it out. <laughs> cross it out and initial and sign it and give it back to them. If they sign it, they've accepted your changes. Right. And he was like, oh, okay. So he did that. And they were like, oh, yeah, they were totally fine. Oh, that's hilarious. But it's, you have to understand, like, from the perspective, pretend you're a gigantic business, that it is more efficient for you to use the same contract for everything you do. And it is more efficient for you to wait for the other side to make changes rather than make changes for each and every uh, engagement that you have. Right. So purely from a let's save dollars standpoint, it 
makes better sense to have one contract and to not change it unless it's changed by the other side, which is why as a freelancer, it's your responsibility to change things that don't work for you and to be prepared that, no, you might not get everything that you want, but if you don't ask for it, you're certainly not going to get it. Well, and on that opinion, on that or that front, they're like showing up to work and getting a contract thing. So I have a ton of uh, friends. I think I've been in this situation a little bit, although I, I have sort of standing gigs now for a while. So it's I kind of have rolling payments and so mm-hmm. forth. But, um, but people who uh, start, let's say a book project and uh, they get a contract, they agree, they work it out, they sign it, and there's a milestone. Like on completion, you'll get a check for X dollars or whatever. Like it's supposed to happen before work commences and the check doesn't come. It doesn't come. Mm-hmm. They're given excuses. Some of them start work and some of them instead, you know, hold fast to say, I am not going to put a minute into this until yeah. the milestone I was promised was met. Where, where do you stand on that in terms of like goodwill and, and what people, what stance people should take on that? Uh, so, I'm going to I'm going to answer the question backwards. I'm going to answer a question that yes. you didn't ask first. <laughs> good, good. <perfect. laughs> um, the one thing I would say that exact uh, what you just described is why if you're doing milestone payments, they should be tied to actions as opposed to dates. Mm. Because if you're tying your milestones to actions, that means that both parties have to uh, have to do something together before you get to the next milestone. If you tie your milestones purely to dates, uh, people can not act or not do all of the work that they promised to, but the next milestone is going to come up. And if you can't deliver to that milestone, you're then in breach of the contract. So if you're going to do milestone payments, tie them to actions or phases of the project as opposed to actual dates. But going back, no, if, if you've got an agreement that says, you know, we'll be paid within 30 days of signing this contract. And, and at that point in time, uh, uh, work will commence. Don't start working until you get paid. What you're doing if you if you do start working is you're you're waiving a right under the contract. And you should look at the contract and see what it says about waivers. There's usually a section and it's usually on like the last page or the second to last page. But when you waive a right under a contract, you are saying, okay, that's not really important to me. And Aside from a legal perspective, what you're saying to the relationship and every other negotiation you're going to have to have to get the job done is, eh, I'm a pushover. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm going to ask for something of you, but if you don't give it to me, eh, I'll still live up to my end of the bargain, which uh, I, I know some people think that's really honorable to, to live up to your side of the bargain, and I absolutely agree, but only if the other side has shown you that they're worth it. Mm-hmm. If they're not worth it, your time is valuable. You should go invest it with somebody who, who's going who's gonna to respect you and who's going to respect the work that you do. And I can hear people saying, but Katie, this is the one client I have and I need to make this work out. And that's fantastic. I, know. I totally that's, get it. it. There's a publisher I know, and I won't mention names, but there's a publisher I know that is – consistently late and has, and has had across multiple versions of itself terrible accounts payable departments. Yeah. I don't think it's purposeful. No. I think it's actual some kind of learned incompetence or, or parts that don't work together in old mainframe yeah. systems or something. But they actually always pay. They're just terrible about it. They're terribly late and sometimes need to get reminders, but they never don't pay. Yeah. You just have to build in. You have to believe it's going to be a 90 to 120 day window <laughs> and cope with it if you want to work with them. And sometimes magically it comes in 14 to 30 days. Typically it's more like 60 to 120 <laughs> and you have to do a follow-up, but they never don't yeah. pay. And, and and that's the other thing is that you sort of learn from your clients what their, what their ticks are. Uh, and and then you can prepare for it in the next contract that you do with them. But this is another reason why it's really helpful for having a contract because let's say you do that. Let's say you have a – I'm going to get a 50% deposit within 30 days of signing the contract before work can commence. If I don't get that 30 days, if I've, if I've written into the contract that work's not going to start until I get my payment and that any delay that is the result of not being paid is the responsibility of the client – they now have incentive to pay you quickly mm-hmm. because they're going to have to own every delay that comes afterwards. And you can talk when you're when you're negotiating, when you're talking. Don't think of this as like hard line positions. Like I want X and you're going to get Y and we're both going to be unhappy about it. But think of it more in terms of why do you want what you want and express that to them. I you know, I want this term in the contract to ensure that we're both invested in the success of the project. And in order for me to be effective in doing the work that I, I need for you, I, I need cash flow. 
And this deposit is that cash flow. It's going to allow me to work well for you. So if you don't provide it at the time that we're agreeing to, it's going <laughs> to negatively impact the work. And I can't control that, but you can, which is why I'm asking for these terms. To what extent do you recommend people are aggressive about payment at like sort of what intervals? I, I've had friends who have had to go to um, small claims mm -hmm. court. And in fact, in one case, they were not paid until a publication looked like it was going to be sold. And so due diligence yeah. was going on and immediately <laughs> everyone was paid suddenly. Yeah. yeah. But they actually serve subpoenas from mm -hmm. small claims mm -hmm. court. They did the whole thing. Like, so how far should people go when they're not paid? How aggressive do you need to be and how fast do you, should you escalate? I, is, I mean, obviously there's depending factors, mm -hmm. but do you recommend people? do like small claims court if, if things, you know, go way too long or, or higher courts if the amount's too high? There is a really fantastic blog. Uh, it's associated with a, a service uh, called Zen Cash, Z-E-N mm. Cash. And they provide all sorts of really helpful uh, best practices for getting paid and getting your invoices paid on time. Some of the things that they recommend that I think are really helpful is uh, – working on getting paid before there's a problem. Ooh. So your invoices are really clear and they're delivered to the right person because you've asked for, you know, who, who's the address. A lot of times we assume it's the client, it's the person that we've been working one-on-one -on -one with, but oftentimes they're just going to forward it to an accounts payable. And if they forget to forward it, eh, you're screwed. So making sure that the invoice is sent to the right person, making sure that the invoice is clear, following up a week or two after the invoice is sent and saying, just want to make sure that you received this and answer any questions if you have them. And then as soon as it's late, sending a reminder, hey, notice that this hadn't been paid. If the payment's on the way, that's great. But if not, please pay within the next 24, 48 hours and, and providing links to how the, how the client can pay. But you know, small claims is an option. I, I am actually probably one of the few attorneys that has spent a lot of time in small claims court um, <laughs> representing, because you can't have an attorney in small claims court. Right. But I, I represented uh, government uh, collecting collecting taxes. It's a great job. Oh, hilarious. But it's a, it's, it's a process. You can, you know, go to your local courthouse and, and go to the clerk's office and ask for the paperwork. And it, because it's small claims and because you can't have an attorney, most jurisdictions do a really good job of explaining the steps that you have to follow. But it's expensive. It's expensive both. You're going to have to pay some court fees. You're going to have to pay fees for serving the papers. Um, and then but you have to pay for collections if the exactly. if the person the other party doesn't decide to pay then you have to go to find a collections party you pay them some money and and it escalates too yeah, it's but it's going to take time yeah so uh, you know the couple of the cases i know in which people did it it was partly out of and these are not ordinary people i know they did a little out of ordinary ordinariness mm -hmm. because they spent so much time trying to get payment they were like all right screw you yeah. if you're going to be that way i'm going to do this and then they eventually they got they got Paid. I'll tell you the flip side of this. There's another side of getting paid is deposit the check. This is not a legal issue. <laughs> I actually have one of my – so I have, I have both the freelancer hat and the editor and publisher hat. Uh, and so I pay people. And, and by the way, I attempt to pay because I have a, a cash flow advance situation. Mm -hmm. I have subscribers. We're entirely subscription funded. I don't have to collect from anybody. Mm -hmm. Money comes in essentially in advance or at the same time as the work is done. So I try to pay – uh, net 14 of publication date. Nice. And sometimes it's, you know, net 28 just because of timing mm -hmm. and accounting, whatever. But, but two to four weeks is my stretch and two is great because I got the money on hand. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm earning, you know, 0.01% interest on it. Like I <laughs> yeah. might as well give it to the writers <laughs> sooner. But I had a writer the other day. I'm like, I got, you know, it's like I wrote her. I'm like, I got this check uh, redeposited in my account for my bill pay service. She's like, She's like, oh, has it been 90 days? Jeez. Like, yeah, it has. Like, deposit yes. the checks. The second you get a check, yes. it should go, like, within a day. Please. It needs to go into a bank account. Pretty, pretty, please. You, she was sitting up a new service, an online banking thing and whatever. Yeah. So I accept that, but it's still. You know what? Still. With the, with, if you have a smartphone, there are 942 <laughs> apps. Every bank has an app now that you just take a damn picture of the check. Oh, I love that. I do, too. I love it's that. magical. Let me let me ask you a question too about so getting paid so this this is really I mean really good stuff getting paid uh, taxes and I wrote this thing on Medium that I'll link to called uh, paying Caesar is due or something that was about Kickstarter and taxes yeah. and how um, and I have a great accountant and he gave me great advice and I I asked him 
So, you know, uh, people listening to the show probably know I did this Kickstarter raise almost $57,000 for a book from the magazine, an anthology of stories mm-hmm. in it. So it's a lot of money. And we raised the money at the end of 2013. And most of the expenses are going to be in 2014, mm-hmm. which is a great strategy. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this long post explaining, like, the tax issues I knew. And, like, so, you know, if you're going to do a Kickstarter, like, city, state, federal, business licenses, yep. uh, withholding, taxation. And the Washington State Department of Revenue, I don't know if I could speak more highly of them. I said send them detailed questions and I get beautifully wow. perfect, correct answers. And my accountant advised me, not every state does no. this, but some will offer binding rulings. So I was yeah. able to send specific questions like I'm an electronic periodical. I'm unclear how to file for this kind of thing. Here's an exact description of it. And they said, oh, okay, because of this, here's our ruling. This is wholesale, blah, 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 mm-hmm. and do this and this. And then I have no liability at that point because the ruling is binding on me. Mm-hmm. And thus I've removed all of any, any kind of taxation liability as long as I follow the ruling they gave me. Yeah. And, and that was an eye-opener that I could just write the state and get an answer that was useful. <laughs> you, you can ask the government what it's going to do. Yeah, but yeah. do you – I know, which is – you know, the federal level is more complicated. All the other level, the federal level is somewhat – is more – is clearer, mm-hmm. I want to say, than the state because the state has a lot of classifications in Washington for business and occupation yeah. tax. So we're kind of a complicated state. We don't have income tax. We have business – an occupation tax. So I actually file in like three different classifications, oh, wow. uh, and some of it's intrastate and some of it's in-state. Mm-hmm. So it's mine more complicated. But but for for freelancers, how often do you? I know you're not an accountant, but how often do you deal with or have to advise the people or talk to people at the tax side of things because they haven't considered it or they thought they did and they they wind up in a in a lurch? I uh, I get a lot of, I get a lot of questions about that. I usually can't answer them legally because there are all sorts of rules about answering tax questions, mm-hmm. but um, I do recommend that freelancers have an accountant and that they work with them on a regular basis because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, my finances really aren't that complex because I'm only making so much money. Your finances are not complex because of the amount that you're making, but how you make that money. So just like you said, you've got these different income sources. And if you're using things like Patreon or Kickstarter or Indiegogo, these are not things that I would say that the states and the federal level have figured out exactly how to deal with. So they're going to take the old rules that apply, you know, to traditional fundraising or traditional business and try to mash it on top of some of these newer ways of of generating cash. So it's in your best interest to work with somebody who knows those rules really well, and they can, they can advise you on how to prepare for that. But, ah, man, I, I talk to people all the time that just didn't realize they were going to have to pay taxes on, Kickstarter money or yes. uh, or Patreon money or – Well, the, the alignment issue is the thing too is I, in this post that I wrote, I I had to do the Kickstarter when I did because if I did it any later, it would be too late and I couldn't do it any earlier because I simply couldn't get the planning together and then there was Thanksgiving and what have you. So I wound up poorly aligned but because of my specific tax situation like where I owed mm-hmm. – Estimated tax Worked and whatever, I wound up not having to pay tax until April 15th because I'd already paid enough tax. An estimated is a complicated thing, but if I'd misjudged it, I might have had to come up with, say, $15,000 to pay the the feds yeah. and then not – and then even though I would be able to get that back, like essentially have a reduction in tax right. by the same amount the next year, I wouldn't have had the cash on hand at the exact moment I needed it yeah. because it would have been offset by like four months from when I needed yep. it. And uh and so I was able luck I was in a very lucky situation, but if I'd planned more poorly, I would have been completely, you know, up a river. Yeah, and it, it, freelancers we, we can do like you say quarterly payments, estimated payments which can help considerably evening things out until you get to April 15th, but if you hide from it, if you ignore it <laughs> and hope that it fixes itself, I can promise you that it will only get worse. So if you know that money is not your thing and figuring out how to do estimated quarterly payments is not your thing, it's even more important to use an accountant. I, I tell people all the time, you're a freelancer and you're doing what you're doing because you're good at your career. But as a freelancer, you have to do a lot of stuff you're not good at. I mean, that that's running a business, right? You don't get to just do what you're good at doing. You have to do everything else, too. And this is why you hire, you pay for an attorney. You find somebody like you who you can hire. My, you know, my accountant charges $95 an hour, and he is so 
uh, efficient mm-hmm. and he's a fast – I met with him once for two hours and I feel like I got six hours of conversation out of it yeah. and it was incredibly useful and he does email and whatever. He's so efficient yes. that I feel like I'm paying $30 an hour because he's so good at what he does. Yeah. Like this seems like a bargain. But even – you know, the first thing I dealt with for him, I discovered I'd overpaid my state B&O tax, business mm-hmm. and occupation tax, by hundreds of dollars. And the state might have eventually found it reclassified and told me. They did in one case where I – it was a smaller matter. But the first thing he did is he, he – basically showed that I had paid $500 too much. I filed something with the state mm-hmm. and they gave it back to me. And that was the first hour I paid for it. I'm like, all right, this is already proven right. pretty useful. It's so complicated. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing. I would also encourage people a lot of times, there are tons of accountants out there. There are tons of tax preparers out there, but it's really in your best interest to ask other freelancers who they use so that yeah. you are more likely to work with somebody who is familiar with your situation. You don't want to work with somebody who is you know, used to a more traditional preparation uh, or used to dealing with somebody who has a considerable amount of wealth in in various assets. You want to work with somebody who is familiar with very small businesses and the fact that your financial life looks very different from, you know, the average family of four. And is local too, Mm -hmm. very likely, because accounting is, I mean, especially in Washington State, I don't know if we're more complicated than most. I think because I feel like we are. Yeah. So like having somebody (laughs) in Seattle, if you're in Seattle, having someone in Seattle, in Washington State, like conceivably you could work with an accountant somewhere else. Maybe they wouldn't want to work with you. Maybe they would for certain kinds of general business issues. But for like the state taxation stuff, it was invaluable having someone who knew how to navigate all the things that are going on. Well, so look, so let's let's finish up with an issue that I think it's something that I think comes up with a lot of freelancers uh, is incorporation. Is uh, you know the LLC used to be a limited liability corporation, used to be something that was more exotic in many states and was mm-hmm. uh, limited maybe to lawyers or specific kinds of partnerships. It's really it opened up several years ago. I know in many states, and including uh, Washington, I don't I don't think we've had it for it's been more than a decade Mm -hmm. here. But it wasn't an option for a long time. And I have not been an LLC until I purchased uh, the magazine. And I decided I needed to incorporate in that way, just have a separate sort of tax and legal structure into which to put everything. And I knew there were legal advantages Mm -hmm. as as well in in some part. How how, um, should freelancers think about that? And the the one proviso I'll give too before you answer is, is, um, I've occasionally seen companies that will not sign a contract with a freelancer who is an LLC. They will only sign a contract with an individual. Mm-hmm. As a publisher, I've had some of my freelancers are LLCs, and I will absolutely sign with them as an LLC because mm-hmm. I do not believe there's any issue with it. But it does come up. So how do you help freelancers navigate whether they should be or should not be an LLC in, in their work? Um, if, if a company is not willing to sign uh, an agreement with an LLC, it's usually because they are concerned that you're going to let somebody else do the work. So one of the ways that you can address that is is within the contract specifically say who the LLC is going to have do the work. And that way, you know, because if, if I'm hiring you to write something, I want you to write it. I don't want you to give it to somebody else and, and turn it in. So one of the things that you can do if, if, if somebody says we don't, we don't sign with LLCs, say, well, if we were to specify that I'm doing the work within the contract, mm-hmm. can we do it that way? Because – if you have an LLC, it really is in your best interest to sign all of your agreements as the LLC. LLCs are great because they provide some separation between you, the individual, and your business, which if you're a freelancer signing lots of contracts is super important because the person responsible for that contract and those obligations is the person who signed the agreement. If it's the LLC... <laughs> And you're signing on behalf of the LLC. The LLC is responsible for those obligations. If you, individual, are signing the contract, you are responsible for those obligations. The advantage of the LLC is it provides, if I understand this correctly, now I have a lawyer on the line Mm. to answer this. But my understanding has always been that, like any kind of corporation, LLC provides a certain amount of, I mean, it's limited liability. liability. It it, it creates a fake person that, that... it doesn't it doesn't let you avoid all liability no. obviously but it lets you avoid there's certain kinds of things like the protection of assets the the ability to sort of separate right. yourself financially and legally but but you know if there's malice if there's uh negligence like things right. like that like if you do a terrible job purposely or you do something awful to someone right. you're not protected right. but that in the general purposes of business you're sued uh assets need to be taken things like that that you have a level of protection that you don't have as a sole proprietor absolutely like if you have a house 
if you have investments like a retirement, if you have things that are important to you that you would not want to lose in a lawsuit, it is helpful for you to have the LLC because the LLC can then be responsible. But once you have the LLC, you have to treat it as a separate thing. Mm -hmm. You have to have a separate bank account for it. You have to do separate accounting for it. You need the LLC to be entering into those agreements for you because it needs to be, you need to treat it as if it is separate from yourself. Uh, if you don't do that, you get into the problems that you were just talking about. And the legal term for it is piercing the veil, which is, ugh, I always think it sounds gross. But but what the, what the court will say is that if you don't treat your company separate enough or separately enough, uh, we will pierce the corporate veil and the person who is suing can reach through the company to you and uh, grab grab your assets if there has been harm. So if you set up an LLC, which I think in a lot of situations could be really good and is relatively easy, like in Oregon, it's $100 and the Secretary of State has a fantastic online wizard that you just answer some questions and I think it can take you all of 15 minutes to do. This, this is right. It's 120 bucks. We're, we're so much more expensive. It's 120 bucks a year in Washington State Woo. and maybe a little registration fee. And, uh, but yeah, it's the same thing. It went online. You fill it all out and you know, there's this little piece of information. I think, in a, I think neither of us should answer this question. It's about accountants, but uh, there's there's an issue about whether you get an employer identification number. So there's mm. taxpayer this, – this comes up. I have had a – as a sole proprietor, there is an issue about like whether you use an EIN, an employer mm -hmm. identification number, or your SSN. And some companies want your SSN. They won't take the EIN if you're a sole proprietor and blah, blah, blah. But with the LLC, if you're a single-member LLC where you're essentially one person like yeah. I am running an LLC, there's an issue about whether you get an IRS uh, tax number. And I chose to do that and it was wise because I was asked a mil – every time I'm setting anything yeah. up, it's asking for the EIN. Even though it was optional, if I provided my SSN, then I feel like I'm not – engaged in that activity of separation that seems to be underlying the notion of having yeah. a separate entity. And the EIN is embarrassingly, embarrassingly simple to set up. It takes five minutes. They sent me a, a PDF yeah. even. It was awesome. It, it looks like it was typewritten, but it's a PDF. This was the great part. So Amazon, when I was setting up payment for uh, mm -hmm. the Amazon payments mm -hmm. to handle Kickstarter, at some point they're like, we can't verify your information. We need you to fax us through our secure <laughs> fax these documents. And I'm like, every document they want, I have a PDF of. Like it was sent to me electronically. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to fax you the electronic document right. that the IRS emailed me yeah. if that's what you really want and I did and they were completely satisfied yeah. but the, the EIN is really nice because then you're not you're not sharing in addition to maintaining separation you're not pasting your social security number on anything and everything oh, and uh, there's no I mean if you can avoid it why why would you want to share that number with everybody I prefer not to. Let me let me ask you one final question. This is an this is a uh, it's in, it'll take twenty minutes to answer. No, I'm but it's uh, I think this is a, this is a great one to ask an attorney because uh, there's all these issues about working for free, and we've talked about compensation. You mm -hmm. you specialize in helping people be paid fairly, mm -hmm. deal with contracts and all that. I don't want to ask you should you work for free because I think that's sort of like a weird sort of moral whatever thing. But how do you protect yourself when you work for free? Do you do exactly the same things you do when you work for if you've chosen to work for an organization? Uh, or maybe it's a volunteer thing, nonprofit, you're producing work for them, or it's a group that you know makes very little money. Like mm -hmm. there are some websites I've written for where I know the editors make nothing. They asked me to write or I wanted something published on their site and I was willing to work for zero dollars. How do you protect yourself working for free? Is there anything special or different you need to do? I would say you do it the same way you do if you're you're making money off a gig. Treat it Treat it professionally and show them that you're treating it professionally. Have boundaries. Enforce those boundaries. And you're in a much better position. I think one of the things that people unfortunately do when they're not making money from a gig is they, you know, they treat it a little bit more casually or the other person ends up treating it a little bit more casually because there aren't those boundaries that are clearly defined for them. But if you treat it like any other job, just absent the check at the end, you're in a much better position. You have the tools from the contract or the, the email that you sent over saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm not going to do. This is when I'm going to do it. And you can use that. So I, I would say treat it, treat it roughly the same way and you're, you're in a much better position. And I would also say that working for free to me means working for no value. You're not getting anything from it. And I, I don't think that's in your best interest. But working for no dollars is different. Uh, there are lots of things that I have done and I've not been paid money, but I've, 
I've done a trade of services or I've, I've gotten an opportunity to do something that I, I really wanted to do. And then I was able to use that opportunity to make, make dollars down the road. So everybody, everybody knows what's valuable to them. I don't know by looking at something, whether or not this is a good thing for you to do, but if you, if you consider it in terms of what's important to you, it's, it's much easier to make those decisions. I always think there's a coercive thing. I've written about this a little bit, and, and Boing Boing's talked about it a lot. They used to not pay when they were small, and then they <laughs> started to pay when they could. Um, they became bigger. And there's this issue about are you coerced into doing something for no compensation when other people are being paid or you should be paid versus are you doing it because you want to and you're <laughs> doing it involuntarily <laughs> and for love or interest or promotion or whatever that no one – you know. Um, I will link in the show notes to this site uh, or this Twitter account called uh, – I don't have the name right here. It's called Four Exposures. Oh, yeah. Have you seen yes. this wonderful? There's another cartoonist Ryan who runs Estrada. Ryan Estrada. Yes, and it's a, it is the most hilarious thing. Anybody who ever thinks about whether they should work for free <laughs> or not, or for compensation or not, should uh, for no value or not, should follow this account because it is a stream of hilarious things people are asking on Craigslist and other for <sighs> for do, zero great. dollar work, and, uh, and it's a great. It's life. only going to be 15 seconds of animation. It'll be fine. That's right. I'm looking for someone to be a life partner in work, but there is no money. <laughs> I already have one, but I need another right. one. It was one of the most recent ones. Katie, thank you so much for all this advice and, and insight. Thanks for being on the podcast. I wanted to share a couple of resources with folks if they, oh, if they yes, don't have please. access to contracts on a regular basis. Docracy. Uh, which is democracy. Uh, uh, it's an open source platform for contracts, basically. So I can go onto Docracy and upload a contract and say, Ooh. I use this contract for design work. Uh, feel free to use it yourself. Wow. And then you can go and you can download it and say, oh, I want to change this section of it because it will allow me to do whatever it allows you to do. And then you can upload those changes and share it with the community. And as a result, you get to one, it's a really great place to just read contracts and, and sort of get the, the lingo down. But it's also a great place to see how people are using contracts and to share good contracts so that we can we can help our, our community. The other one I wanted to point out is ShakeLaw, which is a uh, app for iOS devices. It allows you to put together a very simple contract on your iPhone or your iPad. You basically go through and answer some questions. Yes, I want, it's this type of contract. I need these limitations. And you describe the work that you're going to do, but you can sign it on your iPhone or your iPad. You can, and then it's delivered to the other person and they can sign it on their iPhone or iPad and you have a binding agreement. Oh, that's great. And it's great for really simple things. You know, like we were talking earlier, not every not every gig needs the giant novel of a of a contract. Sometimes you just need something really simple that outlines what it is you're going to do. So that's a great resource. And then the other one is uh, Freelancers Union has something called the Contract Creator, which I think is sort of it's sort of in the middle of those other two resources where you need you need something that's going to work for the job that you're going to do, but you also um, you need a little bit more help and guidance in how you want to put it together. So the the Contract Creator has a series of questions that it asks you to help you figure out what to put into the contract, but they have a basic template that they're working off of. So um, if you are a freelancer and you're intimidated by contracts, the best thing that you can do is just read them, uh, set aside 30 minutes a day, go on to Docracy, pull something, read it through, and uh, they're supposed to make sense. So if you read a contract and it doesn't make sense, um, don't use it. Or ask questions. Talk to somebody else who has used a lot of contracts and say, have you ever seen this language before? I can't quite figure out what it's supposed to mean. But um, use contracts and know that there are resources available for you if really all you need is just a, a simple, straightforward declaration of what it is you're going to do and how it is you're going to do it. That's wonderful because I know I know uh, many lawyers copyright their contracts or they consider them a copyrighted thing and they they tell their clients that you cannot distribute it in any way. So it's it's really wonderful that there's an open source, Creative Commonsy sort of uh, a version of that as well. Yeah. Uh -huh. that, that's a great way to. We can all. I always I like things where the tide rises all boats. Yes. We can all do better all at once by sharing. Yes. It's a wonderful thing. Great. I will put links to all that in the show notes. And Katie, thank you for sharing. Thank you so much, Glenn. This has been a lot of fun. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show 
Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.